0: This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning, everybody. There are at least four reasons to be excited this morning. The first, today marks Pastor Justin and his wife Jessica's 11-year wedding anniversary, which is pretty exciting. (laughs) Jessica, we're clapping for you, by the way, not for him. The second, my Chicago Bears are playing the Stinky Cheesehead Packers today. And for the first time in a long time, we have a better record than the Packers do. Feels good. Feels good. My buddy, one of my best friends, he's a huge Packers fan. And he was sitting middle section, middle way back. And he stood up for service and said, hey now, hey now. And I said, so much fun having a microphone. Because I can talk over you. Third reason— uh, today is week two of our intro gathering, which for those of you who are new to New Life, uh, you'll get to go to the next intro. But it's basically a way that we get to share with people who we are, why we do what we do, what we believe about God, what we believe about life. And that same guy, my buddy Eris, is leading that class across the way with about 20 to 25 people, which is so fun. I love seeing new people come into our church and the fourth reason why, and this is, this is probably even bigger than the bears, uh, is that we are continuing our series that we're calling Friending today. And so if you're new with us, uh, you'll see people right now, they're grabbing their programs because inside their programs, they're pulling out their card that says, start here. Go ahead, and everybody go ahead and grab that right now. Put your name on it, and if you're new, we'd love your email address as well. This is simply our way to connect. Help you connect with us help you connect with the things we're doing in the city and around the world. And ultimately, we want to help you connect with God when you decide to take that step on your journey. Because we want to be a church that knocks down every barrier that would keep you from fully experiencing the life that God created you to live. And I'm going to be asking us to do something with this a little bit later. So go ahead and put your name and email address on that. The other thing you can grab are your teaching notes, because they've got the Bible verses that we're using today. They've got some fill-in-the-blanks. And then I try to leave some space for you on the back so you can take your own notes and thoughts and just write those down. Well, we are digging into, we're kind of right in the middle of a series that we're calling Friending, and and Friending is exploring this reality that we believe as we look through the Bible and as we we experience life together, we believe that the people that we choose to link arms with in this life are key in shaping the impact and the direction that our lives are ultimately going to go. And so we started with this verse that's kind of anchored us in. It's Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. It's been our anchor point for the series, and we've been diving off into all sorts of different directions. But the anchor point is this. A guy named Solomon, one of, one of the wisest men who ever lived. Solomon wrote this. He said, If you choose to walk with the wise, you will become wise. But on the other side of the coin, a companion of fools suffers harm. If you, if you hang out with idiots long enough, you're going to be an idiot someday, or at least do something idiotic at some point in your life. My teen years, my early 20s can attest to that. Yours probably can too. So we've been saying, well, what does it look like to, to link arms with people, to form authentic friendships that would guide us in the direction that would bring us the greatest impact in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our career, that would, that would help unlock the dreams that God has placed inside of us to be change agents in our community and around the world. And as we dive in this morning, I need to tell you about my favorite man in the entire world. My favorite man in the entire world's name is Landon Douglas Finkbeiner. He is my son, and he is three and a half years of awesome. My little man, Landon, is—, is He's, oh, he's incredible. And my little man, I'm going to brag about him. He loves to wrestle. How many of you your kids love to wrestle? When they were young, they loved to wrestle. And you're like, yeah, my kid's 25. He comes up and he hits me. He says he wants to wrestle. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, like as a kid, the cute wrestling, not the call the police wrestling. Um, I digress. And I apologize in advance for whoever I offended right there. Landon loves to wrestle. So this is what a typical day in the Finkbinder house looks like. I get home from work and I hear him running to the front door. And he goes, dad, dad. And then he looks at me with this real tough three-year-old face, blonde hair and green eyes. He goes, I'm, I'm going to wrestle you. He doesn't ask, he just tells me, I'm going to wrestle you. Terrifying. I said to him, Landon, if you really want to be intimidating, you have to say that and then flex your muscles. So he goes, I'm going to wrestle you. And he flexes his muscles like that. I said, and if you really want to be intimidating, true story, you need, to, you need to kiss your biceps because that'll just like, that'll scare people. So he does. He's he, he going will take off his shirt. I'm going to wrestle you. And he kiss, but he can't reach. He, his, he's so big. He doesn't know to kiss his bicep. He kisses his wrist. He goes, I'm going to wrestle you. Which is better than what he used to do, which was just run at me at three years old and dive into this general region. So I'll take this. Now, I tell my son that I love him multiple times every day. If you asked him, who's your dad's favorite man in the world? He would say, I'm my dad's favorite man in the world. I tell him I love him all the time, but he knows that I love him because I wrestle with him. For whatever reason, and if you're a dad, there's something about wrestling with our kids. It just, it tells them, I'm safe I can play. I can be strong. I can be me, and we can have this interaction. It just shows my son that I love him with a really, really deep love. I tell you all this because my little buddy Landon, he came home from our kids' life ministry two weeks ago on Sunday, and he said, Dad, I learned a new song called Let Us Pray. He always talks like that. He's real real tough. Yeah. And uh, if you don't know the song, it goes like this. I will not sing because I want you to come back. Let us pray, let us pray every moment of the day, everywhere and every way It is the right time. For the Father above, he is listening in love and he wants to answer us, so let us pray. So he said, I learned the song. He said, Dad, I said, well, sing it to me, buddy. He said, let us pray, let us pray. And he said, for the Father above, he is listening in love. And he says this, he says, and he wants to wrestle us, so let us pray. (laughs) Yes. there's a a, a story being written in my son's life. We'll call it a a narrative, a dominant narrative being written in my life. And that that narrative is undergirding everything he thinks about life and about God. And this is my son's narrative, his three-and-a-half-year-old narrative. He, He thinks, I have a dad, and my dad loves me. And my dad shows me he loves me by wrestling me. So we gets to church and they start talking about God. And they say, well, God is like a heavenly dad, like a heavenly father. My son naturally thinks, if he's like a, a heavenly father and he loves me, he must want to wrestle with me. So in his mind, he's thinking, wow, the Father above, he's listening in love. And get this, he loves me so much that he wants to wrestle me. So of course, I'm going to pray to this God because God, who wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to pray to a God who, who wrestles him, right? And this narrative about wrestling and love is flavoring his view of God in a really cute three-and-a-half-year-old way. But just like my little man, each of us in our life have narratives that shape and influence the way we view pretty much every part of our lives. We have these dominant stories, and sometimes they're subconscious. They sit below the surface. We don't actually know we're telling these stories in our head, something that happened to us in the past. Sometimes they're conscious. We know why we're saying and thinking the things that we are, but we all have these narratives. We all have these stories that shape and impact the lens through which we see everything in the world. That's why you can be married for five or six years, and then your spouse will say something that seems fairly benign, and you will, you will just have all this emotion around it. Why? Because there's a narrative down deep about something that happened early on that stuck with you, and it's shaping the way you view your spouse on that day. I would say this. A, a narrative, if we're going to define it, a dominant narrative could be something that someone said, something that someone did, could be an experience that happened to you at some point in your life, generally early on in life, and it shaped you. It shaped your life at a very deep level. So now everything we do, everything we think, it it flows out of this subconscious story that we've been told. And, And some of them are good, but many of them aren't. For example, some of us might have been told early on, you're ugly, or you're fat, you're the fat kid and you you could be an adult now, and you could be the most attractive person in the world, but every time you look in the mirror, you think to yourself i 'm ugly i 'm so ugly i 'm fat I'm so fat. and you, you could be hundred and twenty pounds and or thirty or forty pounds no, i'm not no emails uh, whatever it is in and, and and beautiful or you could be you could be a, a big muscular hulk like me you know and okay not a joke uh you know and uh and yet, inside, you're thinking, I, I'm the ugly kid. I'm the, I'm the fat kid. Why? Because there's a, there's a narrative that you were told early on that's shaping the way you view yourself. Maybe, maybe mom and dad told you when you were young, just in, someday, they say, if you don't study, you're never going to amount to anything. And what you heard was, I'm never going to amount to anything. And it doesn't matter now if you get that promotion or if life's going well. You're, you're constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop because you believe somewhere at a deep level, I'm never going to amount to anything. On the other side, maybe you had a coach in high school who said, you know what? You can achieve your dreams. You can do whatever you put your mind to. And now even when things get tough, you think to yourself, you know what? I can achieve my dreams. I don't even know why I think that, but I can, I can do this. I can overcome. I can, I can make my dreams into a reality. Maybe you have a sibling, and, and you were the good one, and they were the bad one, or they were the smart one, and you were the dumb one, or you were the pretty one, and they were the ugly one, and And this is what you were told growing up by friends or family, and you were compared, and now you're adults, and you have this tension between a sibling. You don't even know why there's a tension there. You just know that when you're together, oh, there's a a tension there. It's because there's a a dominant narrative lying underneath the surface, and you're viewing your life through the lens of that narrative. My buddy's got a narrative for me. My dad loves me, and I know he loves me because he wrestles. So God is like a heavenly father— he loves me, so he wants to wrestle us. So let us pray. And what I want to do with our time together this morning is I I want to open up the Bible to the book of Ephesians, and I want to look at what God says is the dominant narrative of each of our lives. And before we get there, I want to give you the backstory, because to read the whole chapter would be quite a bit. But there's a guy named Paul who wrote a whole bunch of the New Testament of the Bible. And Paul wrote this letter to a church in Ephesus. That's why it's called the letter of Ephesians. And Paul says in chapter 2, I want you to know what God says is the dominant story of your life. Because that underpinning story will be the lens through which I want you to view every aspect of your life. And we're going to view this dominant narrative. And then what I want to do is I want to talk about why I think that circles, that small groups, that communities of people who gather together— are better than Rose, which is what we're in right now, for living out the implications of that narrative. And I want to say right from the start, I love Rose. I, listen, I make my living talking to people in Rose. I enjoy this very much. And yet I think there's something unique that happens when we gather together in circles and life groups and community that cannot happen when we are in Rose. And when I tell you about the narrative that God says about each of us uniquely, I want to give a warning It starts out kind of bad. Well, it starts out good, and then it goes bad, and then it goes worse. But then it gets really good at the end. So stick with me. Don't tune out here. You're going to be really sad. Follow me through to here. The story of our narrative, of our lives, God says is this, that we were created, each of us uniquely, in God's image. That he, he, he looked at uh, himself and he said, I want to create people in my image because I love them and I want to have a life and a plan for them. We were created uniquely in God's image, but we were also born with something internal that the Bible calls sin. And Paul lays this out for us in Ephesians chapter 2. And if you're new to Christianity or Christian faith— Sin is simply this, it's, it's the things that we, that we think, the things that we say, the things that we do that are hurting us, and they're hurting the people that we love the most, and they're separating us from God, because God is without sin. He is perfect, and he cannot be with, with imperfection. And I don't have to tell you what sin is because you've laid in bed before and you've thought to yourself, oh, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I, I listened to that. I can't believe I smoked that or drank that. I'm never going home with her again. I'm never going out with him again. I'm never going to do it. And then you find yourself doing it again. You think, oh, why am I doing—it's because, it's because there's this thing called sin inside of us, and it's leading us to destructive patterns. That's why, that's why the last time you screamed at your kids, you swore that'd be the last time you screamed at your kids. And then a week later, you screamed at your kids again. Not Not that they don't deserve it. Not that they don't deserve it. But you know that it's destroying the relationship. So you say, I'm never going to do it again. And then we, we do it again. Why? Because sin is not something outside of us. God says the narrative is that we are created in his image, but sin is actually inside of us and it's marring us. And we can't live the life we were created to live because of sin. And this is where the story gets even worse. See, the sin that's hurting us and hurting other people, we're powerless to do anything about it. That's why we lay in bed and think, I'm never going to do it. I'm never going to say it. I'm never going to go there. I'm never going to drink it. And then a week later, a month later, a year later, we're drinking it, we're smoking it, we're doing it, we're thinking it, we're saying it. We're with her, we're with him. And our friends are saying, what are you doing? We're saying, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to. And yet the Bible tells us that sin actually— it kind of controls us, whether it's, whether it's lying, or greed, or envy, or, or unforgiveness, which, which is now we just become this bitterness, where I'm just bitter, and, and angry, and hurt, or, or maybe it's fear, or maybe it's control. These are all, these are all sin issues that, that we cannot overcome on our own. This is where, again, don't tune out now, because this is like the low point, okay? Not only is it hurting us, and hurting the people we love— But it's separated us from our Creator God who made us in His image to have a relationship with Him. And we're talking about friending in the context of these relationships, but the truth is, the number one relationship is one that God wants to have as a Heavenly Father with us. He wants to wrestle us, so let us pray. Here's where the story gets really good Ephesians chapter 2 says what we just celebrated in communion, that. That while we were separated from God, enemies from God, God became a man in Jesus Christ. He was fully God and fully man. And he looked down on our sin and saw that we were helpless to do anything about it, that it was, it was hurting us and hurting those we love and, and separating us from God. So God did something about it. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life, fully God, fully man. And then he gave his life on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And he died on our behalf, but it gets better. He didn't just stay dead eyewitnesses, and I'm not talking about what the Bible says, I'm talking about eyewitnesses reported the fact that he rose from the dead. Hundreds of people saw him, rose from the dead, and he conquered death, and he conquered sin. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. We were here. God brought us here. He says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is, this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. So he says, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. God has saved you because of his great love and his great grace. Not by works so that we can't boast. We can't save ourselves. That's why we lay in bed and we think, oh, I'm never going to do it again. And then we do because we can't save ourselves. But God saved us by his great grace so that none of us could boast except to say that God has poured his love out. Upon every person who calls on his name. Verse 10, it gets even better. We are God's handiwork. And we're going we're gonna to rest on that word in just a few minutes. We're his handiwork. So you can circle that or underline it. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. Paul says this, God loves us so much that he saved us from our sin and from its outcome, which would be eternal separation from God. Because remember, perfect and imperfect cannot coexist together. He saved us from our sin. He forgave us of our sin when he took our sin upon himself on the cross. He wants to free us from the power of sin so that we don't have to live as slaves to the things that are hurting us and hurting other people. God says we actually have power through his spirit to live free lives and full lives and complete lives. And then it gets even better. He says, the reason why God did it is because he loves us. In verse 10, he says, we are God's handiwork. We're his handiwork. And that word handiwork is a little Greek word poema. And from that word poema, we get the English word poem. Poem. What the author's saying is this. He's saying saying your life is a poem that God is writing. Not only does he want to save and forgive and and free us from our sin, but now God's great desire is that he wants to write a poem in our lives that's supernaturally written and supernaturally empowered. He wants a life for you and for me that's beyond anything that we could ever do on our own because he loves you and he has a plan for you and he wants to take what used to be. He wants to take those old narratives that shaped you. You're not good enough. You'll never amount to anything. You'll never achieve anything. You're the the dumb one. You're the ugly one. You're the whatever the one was that you were. He says, I want to rewrite that old narrative in light of this new narrative that I love you. I created you. I saved you and you are my poem. I'm writing a story and you are the story that I'm writing. It's as if God is looking down from us at heaven and the angels gathered around and they said, God, what are you working? on these days? You did the whole, you did the whole dying on the cross thing on Good Friday. You did the whole raising from the dead thing on Easter. You started the church. That's a pretty big deal. What are you doing now? What's your focus, God? And and I just imagine God looking at the angels and smiling and pointing and saying, do you see her? Do you see him? Do you see him? Do you see them? Look what I'm doing in their life. They're what I'm focusing on these days. I'm writing a story. I'm writing a narrative in their life. I'm rewriting some old stories and I'm writing a new story. It's as if God's saying, do you remember her? Remember how she used to be so, so caught up in fear that every time her kids left the house after they got their license, she just sat there terrified that they were, they were going to get in a car accident and they were going to die. Remember, it just it ate her up and she was in knots every weekend. But now she's learning to trust me and she knows that I'm in control and, and that fear is starting to melt away. Look at the poem I'm writing in her life. Isn't it beautiful? It's as if God's saying, remember him? He was He was so angry. He was so angry. He would, he would snap at anybody. He would yell at anybody. He picked a fight with anybody he could. His favorite Friday night was going to the bar, finding someone, choosing them off, and getting in a fight with them because he had so much anger. But now look at what's going on. He's experiencing my love and my forgiveness and my patience and my grace. And, and I'm rewriting a story where now he's gracious. Where now he's finding freedom and joy and he's forgiving other people when they spill beer on his boots because he knows that I've forgiven him when he spit in my face. Look at the poem that I'm writing. You want to know what my focus is? God would say, look at the people in this world. I'm rewriting their narratives. And here's why I think circles Are So important and here's why I think circles are better than rows for rewriting narratives Because in rows when we come to church on sunday morning We have the opportunity to hear about the story that god wants to write I love spending hours looking at the bible pouring over what god says in his word praying into it to figure out the story That god's trying to write in your lives. I love sharing that with you Sitting in rows gives us an opportunity to rethink some of the things that we've been thinking But the truth is, some of the narratives that God wants to rewrite are deeply ingrained within us. Some of the false stories that we've believed about ourselves and our life and this world, we've believed them for 10, 20, 30 years. And there's no way a 30-minute sermon can rewrite 30 years of a false story. If you're sitting here today and you're 10 years into a marriage that by anyone's estimation is difficult, and you're on the brink of giving up, I don't care how good the 30-minute-plus message is. It will not change your marriage in 30 minutes. Now, God can get you thinking about things in 30 minutes, but, but you can't rewrite 30 years or 10 years in 30 minutes. If you were abused growing up, sexually abused or physically abused or verbally abused, then I, I can preach with everything in my gut a sermon about how God wants to heal you and He would his, his great desire is for you to experience his forgiveness and be able to, to give forgiveness. But a 30-minute sermon on forgiveness and healing is not going to change that narrative that got written early on when you were taken advantage of. It can help us rethink certain things, but it's not going to change certain things. And that's where circles come into play because circles help us live out the reality of what we're learning in here. I, I think there are a number of reasons why circles are better than rows. One of the benefits of circles is that circles create space for us to form friendships that help our spiritual roots to go deeper. We've been talking about this for weeks now. Hopefully it's, it's beginning to kind of sink in. They say it takes the average learner about eight times to hear something before they start to internalize it and have it sink in. I think we're on week six or seven, but listen, you're above average, church, so I'm not concerned. I know it's starting to sink in for us. We've been saying life change happens when we form unique, authentic friendships who are seeking God together. And life groups give us the opportunity to form those friendships. They don't guarantee it, It's not a magic formula. Join a life group, you'll find your best friend. They don't guarantee it, but at least they create space for us to join with friends, with people who could become friends who are on a similar spiritual journey. So what we're asking you to do this fall is to take a risk. Life groups only last for 12 weeks. It's it's three months. Take a risk for 12 weeks and, and ask God, could I form some real friendships in this circle of people who are on a similar spiritual journey and see what God wants to do? For some of us joining a group, it could take two or three or four groups before we find one where we actually connect with people and click with them in in a friendship relationship sort of way. And you know what? That's okay. If you get into a group and you're one or two weeks in and you just don't mesh with the people, just get out of the group. They won't think anything bad about you. Find a group that's good for you. It could take two, three, or four groups to find the right one for you. But but try it because friendships give us the opportunity to rewrite authentic stories. Because some of those old narratives we have, they're deep within us. But can you imagine gathering together with a group of people every week who know you, I mean, who really know you, who would say to you, I know you don't believe that you can blank, and you can fill in the blank for yourself. I know that you don't believe you can beat that addiction. I know that you don't believe that you can heal your marriage. I know that you don't believe that you can turn your dream into a reality. I know that you don't believe that you are worth anything. But wouldn't it be great to sit together with a group of people who know you, who could say, even though you don't believe that's true, I know you, and I know God, and I'm here to tell you that is true. You can, by God's grace, rewrite that old narrative and live the story you were created to live. Circles give us an opportunity to do that. They create space where friends can get together on a regular basis and seek after God. Another great thing about circles— is that circles put flesh on stories that God's writing. I come home from work some days, and I'll say to Maria, because Maria, um, she works part-time from home, and she raises both kids full-time at home. So she's got two jobs. And, and when, I'm, when I'm a little feisty, I'll joke with her. And, and I'm, I'm feisty pretty much every day that ends in, in Y. That's when I'm feisty. So, so I'll joke with her sometimes. I'll say, hey, babe, uh, what's it like being on this perma-vacation, you know, where you can just kind of be home all day? And she doesn't find that as amusing as I do. I... I I, I, I smile, and I say, I'm going to wrestle you. No, I, I don't <laughs> say that. She says, let me tell you about my day, Kevin. Let me just tell you about my day. First of all, we had this. So-and-so threw up. So-and-so wrestled. I got a call from school. We, not my kids. My kids don't get calls home from school, but like other kids. Uh, they, were, they were snapping each other. And then I've got this huge project at work, and I'm trying to do it during their nap time. I'm trying to sneak away here. I had to make dinner, and now they're napping, and, and now they're in bed, and I'm trying to work now. And, and she says, so what did you do today, Kevin? I said, well, let me tell you what I did today. Got to the office. Read my Bible for about an hour. It was nice. It was really nice. Just studying, learning about God. And then I, I read this book for a sermon series I'm planning for the fall. And then I got together with some of my best friends, our pastoral team, and we talked about what God's doing in our lives. And then we spent some time praying together. And then we had lunch. Then I sat and I, I contemplated a few things. Then I came home and I wrestled with Landon. And she says to me, well, no wonder, no wonder You can do all the stuff you're talking about. Like, you get paid to follow Jesus. And I know some of you are sitting in here, and when I preach, and and when Pastor Ron preaches, especially because he's way better than me, but when I preach, here's what you hear I tell you stories about what God is doing in my life, and my family, and our finances, and trusting Him with our dreams, and you think to yourself, well, that's great, Kevin, but you're a paid professional. Of course you can do that. You get paid to do it. Listen, all you do is go to work and talk about God and think about God. Some of you are thinking this. You're too polite to say it, but you're thinking, hey, did you know that like the rest of us, we actually have to go to real jobs all week long? Did you know that? And so you discount what I say. And that makes total sense. It makes total sense. But listen, the great thing about circles is that you're with other real people who really have real jobs. And when you see them following God, you know what it does? It's going to inspire you. It puts flesh on the things that God is doing. You can discount me if you want to. I hope you don't. Because listen, I'm jacked up too. (laughs) Amen. Thank you for that. Amen. I heard that. I heard that. Yeah, I see you. You're a Colts fan, aren't you? We'll talk about them next week. We can, sit in, we can sit in rows and we can think, well, that's the pastor. Of course he can do it. But in circles, in circles, it puts flesh on the things that God's doing. It's one thing to hear me say, God can heal your marriage. It's another thing to sit in a life group with 10 people and have a couple say, you know what? We were in divorce court and God told us not to get a divorce and he's healing our marriage. And now we're two years beyond that and it's brighter than it's ever been. It's one thing to hear me say on stage, God can help you break an addiction. It's another thing to hear someone in your life group say, I'm 20 days sober. And God's breaking that addiction. It puts flesh to the stories that God is writing in a real way. I think it's so incredible. That's why for four weeks in our sermons, uh, in our sermons and our life groups, we're going to just explore the power of story. And I'm really excited about this. In mid-October through uh, mid-November, I've invited each of our staff, instead of me preaching, I've invited each one of our pastoral staff, Angela and Jake and Ron and Justin, to take a Sunday and to tell some aspect of their story of faith. How God has grabbed them, how he brought them through a difficult time or how he showed himself to them in creating some dreams. And they're simply going to tell their story because I believe there's power in story. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go into our life groups those weeks and each of us is going to have an opportunity to share our story of what God's doing in our lives and how we're experiencing Him real time. Because I think there's power in story that we just can't get in rows. And I love rows, but I think circles are better than rows for putting flesh to the stories that God is writing. And finally, I would say this I think in circles we have the opportunity to explore the implications of what we're learning in rows. This fall, each of our groups is going to be message based which means we're going to hear the message on Sunday, and then we're going to go into groups, and we're going to talk about the implications of that message in our life groups. We're not going to have 25 different groups on different topics. We're going to have 25 different groups with one topic, with one theme, with one direction, so that we can explore the implications of what God is doing. And I think this is going to be great, because we live in a scattered world where we're going a million directions at once. I think it's going to be great for our church to hear something on Sunday, think about it on Monday and Tuesday, get into a group, and discuss it on Wednesday. I think we're going to get traction in our faith that way. I think we're going to go deeper into what God's doing. Because I know there are Sundays when you guys sit up here and you think to yourselves, Well, I don't know about that. I don't know if I agree with that. Or I want to know more about that. What is what is what does this mean? But you have nowhere to talk about it. Well, life groups create a space for you to talk about it. You'll get to get into a group and talk about it. Here was what I thought. Here was my question. Here's what I don't get. I don't see how that lives out. And dig into it. And I think we're gonna go deeper in our faith than ever before. And like I said, I love Rose. I love Rose. My two favorite days of the week are Saturday, which is our Finkbiner Family Fun Day. It's our Sabbath day, where we rest, and we refresh, and we explore uh, how good God is, and we play games together. I love Finkbinder Family Fun Day, and I love any Sunday that I get to preach. It, I just love it every time, because I get to share with you what I think God wants to say to our community, and I love that. I love Rose. But something unique happens in circles that just can't happen in Rose. And I don't want you to miss out on the depth of what God has for you as you explore friendships, as we get into circles, as we share together. So I want to invite you this fall, take a risk with me. Take a risk with me and get into a circle. Get into a life group. I would love to have you join me today in praying for some friends of ours at Adobe Christian Church here in Petaluma. There's a whole team of them in Thailand right now on a mission trip, and I want to, I want to pray for them. Yeah, it's really exciting. I love what God's doing. Lord, thank you so much that we get to partner with so many amazing churches here in Petaluma who uh, are really just looking to love you and to love people both locally and globally. Thank you for Adobe and Pastor Bill and, and their new uh, Pastor Ryan and their whole team over there. And thank you for their heart to visit all of their global partners and that they get to be in Thailand right now. We pray that you would give uh, encouragement to the missionaries and the men and women in Thailand right now, that you would be uh, giving encouragement to the team in Adobe as they're about a week into this trip. Lord, guide and lead them. And As they come back, we're praying that the transformation they experience in you would, would flavor not only their community, but our community at large. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.